0: All right, why don't you open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We're gonna look at chapter 27 and 28 this morning as we see David fleeing and Saul falling. No fear can stand up to hunger. No patience can wear it out. Disgust simply does not exist where hunger is. And as to superstition beliefs and what you may call principles, they are less than chaff in a breeze. That is from Joseph Conrad's short story from 1902, Heart of Darkness, in which he writes about his experience on a river steamboat in the heart of Africa, in the Congo. He deliberately traveled to Africa to experience hunger, corruption, and other evils, and to find what he called darkness in himself. And that is what he found, he writes, as he's never found before. There are many types of troubles, there are many types of Troubles that we experience as many different types of people that we can come across that can expose our, the hearts of darkness within us. There is hunger and poverty and loneliness and hopelessness and failing families and crumbling societies. But we know as Christians that the trouble of all troubles is the struggle against our own sin. We say we love and worship God, but yet we still live contrary to his commands, and we have to admit that those such troubles make the stuff of good stories. Who wants to read a story about Davy who got up in the morning and had a good day? <laughs> and nothing happened to him during the day. No one wants to read that. There needs to be threats. There needs to be danger, some moral ambiguity and some tension. And, and even we like to have that tension resolved by the end. Authors say that it's easier to describe evil than good to bring to life a bad character than a virtuous one. Evil characters seem more understandable, more explicable, more real. They have depth and texture that is absent in good characters. After all, every one of us has experienced troubles and trials, difficulties and defeats. And these experiences are the stuff out of which the best stories are made. And we want to learn where the character turns when trouble comes. We want to find ourselves in that story, fighting the tension, battling those that fight against them. And 1 Samuel 27 and 1 Samuel 28 doesn't disappoint. In these two chapters this morning, we're gonna look at two people and their reactions when trouble comes into their life. David and Saul, we've been following them for a number of weeks now and coming to the end of this book. And trouble has been following David ever since chapter 18. He's been on the run. And soon that will end with the death of Saul. But before we come to that end, we we read David's response to trouble in chapter 27. When, When trouble came before earlier, David would go to the Lord seeking direction and peace. But in chapter 27, David seems to have lost his way. We'll also look at Saul and his response to trouble in chapter 28. When the threat of the Philistines becomes too great for him, he will scramble to find answers and direction for his trouble, and it won't bring the peace that he's hoping for. Will he seek God for God himself, or will he seek God for himself? We all have trouble in our lives, and I'm praying that this text this morning will help us when trouble comes. And so... Two major sections in the sermon this morning, David's response to trouble, chapter 27, and Saul's response to trouble in chapter 28. And so I'm gonna pray, and we'll get started. You pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll look at God's word together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had already to come and to worship you in song, and, and come and worship in, in giving, and, and now through the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, God, we, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified in this. God, I pray for your people that are seated here this morning that you would teach them, that you would be their guide and they would understand what the text says and they would apply it to their life and that they would leave this morning different than when they came in. And God, I pray for those that are not part of this family that are either visiting or invited and I pray that you would convict their hearts, that you would bring truth to bear in their lives, that they would understand and repent and turn to you and trusts in you. And will give you all the glory for what happens in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So David's response to trouble. The first thing he does is he fearfully flees. David's response to trouble, he fearfully flees. Look at verse one, chapter 27. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than, than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair about seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maecho, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, and he and his men, every man with his household, and David and his two wives, Ohanonym of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, and Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Akish, I have found favor in your eyes. Let a place be given me in one of your country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in this royal city with you? So that day Akish gave him Ziglag. Therefore, Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. David is seen here consorting with the enemies. He has gone into the pagan land, he's lost his edge, he's most likely experiencing some sort of depression. He's lost faith in the promise of God. And and you hear it in his words. He says that in verse one now, he's speaking to himself, I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should escape than Saul's hand. He's saying no matter where I go, no matter what I do, Saul is always gonna be coming after me. David believes this. He's convinced himself that he's alone. And we ask, where is the evidence of prayer at this point in David's life? Where where is the evidence that David has looked for guidance from God? It it doesn't seem like he's he's brought the priest or the ephod with him that would give direction from God. He, He could have even sought guidance from the 600 men that were with him, but he doesn't. He feels defeated. He's pessimistic. He has lost sight in the promises of God. He's lost his nerve as the future king. He's like Elijah in 1 Kings 19 at the threat of Jezebel, sitting at the foot now of the juniper tree, asking God to take his life. This is David. And friends, this happens to believers. When life is overwhelming, when trouble comes, and when we feel defeated by the weight of circumstances, we can react the same way that David does here. I'm not defending David or I'm excusing his behavior here, but realize that this happens to Christians. David hasn't been in the land where God was present. He he wasn't in fellowship with God's people. He was away. He's overwhelmed by his trouble. He's under a lot of stress and he flees. And human emotions are reactive. It's, it's not uncommon to experience despondency soon after being filled with a thrill of triumph. This happens to Christians today in the midst of troubles. We flee the presence of other Christians, primarily the church when life is overwhelming we when when trouble comes and we neglect to come to church or talk to Christian friends we then too can become like david and make foolish decisions when we miss the fellowship of god's people when that happens we'll be in jeopardy of having the same type of discouragement that david is experiencing here discouraged people are usually lonely people god hasn't designed us to live completely alone, but to live in community and friendship. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For us as Christians, it means that we are to be connected to people who are like-minded, we're to be committed to a local church. And David lost his fellowship. He lost the opportunity to worship with God's people. And because of that, he now foolishly flees the country into the land of the Philistines. It also really depends on, on what you're preaching to yourself. This, this text tells us that David said in his heart, David is talking to himself. And what he kept saying to himself now has determined his action. And what you preach to yourself, what you think about most often, is what the center of yourself will, will now dictate what you will do in times of trouble. All of us influence our souls. That is, we're, we're consistently telling ourselves something. We don't normally do this audibly, but inwardly. And if you don't believe me, it's probably because you've been ignoring yourself, and yourself is probably upset with you because you haven't been listening to you. That makes sense? And how important is it to be feeding ourselves the truth of God's word every day? I read a story of my favorite preacher this week, Charles Spurgeon. It was 1854, Spurgeon's first year of ministry and sickness has struck the city. One family after another called Spurgeon to, to their bedside of a loved one. Almost daily, he stood by a grave. At first, Spurgeon threw himself into visitation of the sick with his youthful vigor. Soon, however, weary in body and sick at heart, he began to think he was about to succumb. He was on the great Dover Road, dragging himself home from a funeral when a large, broad-sided poster in a shoemaker's window arrested his attention. It didn't look like a trade announcement, and in the center of the large sheet in a good, bold handwriting stood the words, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, The most high who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. The words of Psalm 91, 9 through 10 took their immediate effect on Spurgeon. He said, faith appropriated the passage as her own. I felt secure, refreshed. I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. Spurgeon allowed the word of God to preach to his heart instead of his emotions or fears. Be careful, friends, what you allow to dictate your heart. Center your heart on the word of God, not the words of man. His second response, David's, was he viciously murders. It doesn't get any better here. Verse eight, now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gesherites Geshurites and the Gizarites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels and the garments, and come back to Akish. After he's been in in Gath, he asked to be removed under the nose of the king, um, and he's given the town of Ziklag. He he then begins to go on raids, working for a king of now. Friends, David is a mercenary going on killing sprees to the southern parts. He would attack the people of the Geshurites and the Gizarites and the Malachites and carry off the spoils from victory, bringing the king the plunder from the attacks. It's it's wholesale slaughter. One commentator calls David the butcher of the south. Ladies and gentlemen, here's David, the butcher of the south. David is in fact doing the job of Saul here again, removing the enemies of God. It's a, it's a holy war against those that despise and kill God's people. But still, we should be careful not to remove guilt from David. His rationale for these murders isn't necessarily good for the name of God. But it's for his own protection, as we will see next. David isn't killing in order to protect the holiness of God. No, he is saving his own rear end. David doesn't justify his behavior either. It's just there. Written for us with no explanation. Another way that David responds is David foolishly deceives. Look at verse 10. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Nagab of Judah, and it's the south, against the, the south of the Jeremelites, or against the Nagab of the Kenites. Nagab means south. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, Lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Akish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore he shall always be my servant. Now look in chapter 28, verse 1. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Akish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Akish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Akish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David has now made his bed and he has to sleep in it. King Akish has believed David now, hook, line, and sinker. David has him completely fooled. But he has to keep up the part to do what he has to keep deceiving him. You see, the reason David doesn't allow anyone to live in those raids is that they, if they live, they would tell the king what David has been and what David's been doing. And David doesn't want the king to know what he's been doing. And so he lies. When we lie, we have to keep lying to cover up the lies. You know that, Right? He has to keep lying. has to keep deceiving. When King Akish asks where he's been, he tells them that he's been in the south, the lower southern Judean countryside, plundering Judah, Akish's enemies. He's lying. There's no whitewashing this. David lies, plain and simple. He's done it before. We've seen it already. He, he told Jonathan to lie when he was absent from the dinner with Saul. His own wife lied when, when he was getting hunted, probably because David told her to do that. Later, David lies to a kish by acting like a madman when he really wasn't. But now ethics come into play. Is it always bad to lie? Sometimes in times of war we lie, we, we deceive. I shared this a number of weeks ago when David was before the king and acted like he lost his, his mind. But if you remember in history, the D Day landings on the shores of northern France was an elaborate deception for months to deceive the Nazis. Wouldn't tell them exactly where where and when this was going to happen. It was a plot to deceive their enemies. And those ethics of truth-telling deception take on new form in times of war. And this was wartime for David. The same during the times of the Nazis when hunting Jews. If they were hiding in my floorboards, friends, I would lie. I'm not saying that's ethically correct. And I would ask God to forgive me, but I would lie. David lies here. But not only that, David is skating towards treason. First two verses in chapter 28 finish the story of David here by displaying the full effect of the lies of David. He has established such trust with King Akish that he asked him to join forces to go out into war with his own people. Akish believes David will join him and David doesn't disappoint, saying, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Baffled by David's response here, a man unsure of himself in his job right now. He's joined forces with the enemy of Israel. And just like that, right when the story starts to get interesting, there comes on the screen as you're watching, to be continued. Because it stops. We're not going to find out what happens to David until we get to chapter 29 and 30, and that's not going to be for a few more weeks, friends. David's response to trouble isn't the best example for us this morning, but it's real. It's a raw reaction by David and it shows us ourselves this morning. David has been of both worlds in this book. He is a man after God's own heart and he's a man who shuns God's law. And David is us here this morning. I don't mean to defend David at all, but we need to be careful before we cast too many stones of judgment towards him. I've been trying to understand David all week. And for sure, I know he's not my savior. He's no Jesus here. We need a savior, and it's not David. This chapter, though, reminds us again that we're more like David than we'd like to admit. And it should show us that we need a savior as much as David does because we're capable of making the same decisions that David makes. So we've seen David here in chapter 27. Now let's look at Saul, Saul's response to trouble. The telephone rang down in the, the bunker. It was for Hitler. Joseph Goebbels, the minister of propaganda to the Third Reich was on the line. He was ecstatic. The reason, the news that Franklin D. Roosevelt was dead. It was April 1945, Germany was caving in, the Allies were pressing from the west, the Russians from the east. Soon Berlin itself would crumble, but none of that mattered to this General Goebbels, for as he told Hitler, quote, it is written in the stars, the last half of April will be the turning point for us. He's referring to the two previous astrological predictions that had forecasted the hardest blows for Germany during the first MONTHS OF 1945, ESPECIALLY IN THE FIRST PART OF APRIL, BUT AN OVERWHELMING VICTORY IN THE SECOND HALF OF THE MONTH. INSTEAD OF THE HOPE Goebbels' HOROSCOPES COMING TRUE, HITLER INSTEAD COMMITTED SUICIDE ON APRIL 30TH. Goebbels WOULD SOON DIE AFTER. AND FOR HIM AND MANY MEN, WHEN FACING RUIN, THEY WILL TURN IN DESPERATION TO ANY RESOURCES THAT THEY THINK WILL GIVE SOME HOPE, SOME DIRECTION. And the same is true for Saul. David has his own issues and how to deal with trouble. But as we see, Saul has bigger issues. Did anyone read chapter 28 this week? Me and seven people. Come on, people. I mean, it's an an engaging chapter here. He's a whole different class than David from his fall from power. And he's going to plummet here at the end of the chapter. Saul is racing towards the end of his life. And chapter 28 is the final night of his life. So how does Saul respond? First, Saul scrambles. Look at verse three. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Now this is important. This is the reason why the author puts this in here. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem and Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gibeah. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. I told you it was interesting, right? Necromancy, wizardry was condemned by God's law. You can find it in Deuteronomy 18 and a few other passages. I'm reading this morning from the 2011 version of the ESV, and a change took place uh, a number of years ago. You know the Bible translators sometimes tinker with certain words, and the ESV changed the prohibition in Deuteronomy 18 from the 2001 edition. The 2001 edition said that necromancy and wizardry was forbidden, but the 2011 says that mediums and necromancy are forbidden. So that makes Gandalf and Dumbledore all right, and Saruman and Voldemort bad. Are you following? Moving on. Saul had obeyed the earlier commandments of God to banish all mediums and necromancers, those that practice divination. But now pressure has built up and Saul has nowhere to go. He's afraid. His heart is trembling with them. Where can he go? What can he do now? He tries to go to the Lord, but he hears nothing. God is silent. Why? Why does God not answer? And the evident explanation is that while Saul went through all the right mechanics of an appeal to God, his heart never changed. It never opened. There was never any repentance or true faith. See, Saul was seeking comfort, but not guidance. And his unyielded heart was met by God's unyielding rejection. If you reject God's word, he will take it away from you. Samuel was dead. Saul killed all the priests of the Lord. He continually rejected God and his word, and now he's left by himself, searching, scrambling for help. He has no access to God's word, no direct word from God. He's afraid now, knowing that the Philistines are coming and possibly David with them. But what we have here is God giving Saul over to himself. He has given him over into a reprobate mind, as we read in Romans 1. He exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And the whole of Saul's life has become a lie. Friends, this passage should be a warning for us. It should be a warning for those that are possibly here this morning that are apostates. What's an apostate? They're, They're not a true believer in Christ who then later falls away. No, instead, an apostate is a professed believer, an outward member of the believing community, who instead, engaging the Lord in true faith, hardens their heart towards God in their sin. They profess, but they don't possess. The ultimate result is not merely unbelief, but a seared conscience and a heart hardened to a point of no return. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6 talk of this. It says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. They tasted, but they never consumed that gift. There was never any genuine repentance by them. They were with God's people. They heard God's word, but there was no real change. An apostate will walk away never, ever truly being saved. William Blakey writes, Saul was incapable of that exercise of soul which would have saved him and his people. Most terrible effect of cherished sin. It dries up the fountains of contrition and they will not flow. It stiffens the knees and they will not bend. It paralyzes the voice and they will not cry. It blinds the eyes and they not see the saviour. And Saul, in the dark night of his soul, will only engage the outward motions to try to manipulate God to get comfort. But only God is open to those with a broken heart and contrite spirit. Saul, in his hardened, seared heart, calls for his men to bring a medium to him. All of this is because he's rejected the word of God, not just one time, friends, but for a lifetime. This has been an example of Saul here. He hates the word of God. He despises the word of God. He rejects the word of God. And this should give us pause for our own lives, friends. Do you love the word of God? Seeking to read it, to sit under the preaching of it, letting it guide and dictate your life? Or are you living like Saul here? You you maybe don't outright reject the word of God. But by your lifestyle, you have rejected it. You have issues in your life, whether work or friends or family, and you look anywhere, anywhere, anywhere else for guidance but the word of God. Friends, this book, 66 books inside, but one book as a whole from Genesis to Revelation, God's holy, infallible word, which is able to make us wise into salvation. This book deals with us. It teaches us, it guides us in any issue that we would face here on earth. And we need to treasure it. We need to love it. We need to study it. It can't sit on our shelf from Sunday to Sunday or in our car, unopened, unread. Friends, you need to read the word. You need to bring it with you on Sunday. And if you don't have a copy, I'll buy you a copy. We have plenty here. You bring it with you, you treasure the word. Friends, this is God's voice for you. This is how you find out about salvation through Jesus Christ, it's through the word. So don't neglect the word. Don't reject the word like Saul does here. Treasure it, love it. He doesn't only reject the word, he rejects God. And before we look at the next few verses, I wanna say a few things. Don't ever think that the Bible writers, I mean, the the human writers, and and even the Holy Spirit, the divine writer, don't think that they are not as wise and as clever as you because they don't see problems in the passage. Friends, don't jump to conclusion that the author of the text didn't see these problems. There there are a lot of problems to to understand this text that, that we might notice. You know, was it really Samuel that is to come here in a few moments? It's probably the biggest issue. But let me put it a different way now. The text doesn't really raise any problems. When you read the text, you don't get the sense that the, the writer is writing full of angst, like he's fearful of putting it down. No, he's not. He just tells us what happened. He doesn't tell us in their writing that there's a problem. That's our response when we read it. We're trying to, to, to figure out what this means. So don't read the word in that way. Read it to understand, and maybe that'll help as we, we look at it here. Look at verse seven. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. And Saul was like, Endor, Endor. Isn't that where the Ewoks live? Ewoks, right? Anyone know that? Don't Google it now, I'll do it later. Verse eight. So Saul disguised himself and put on other, other garments and went and he and two men with him and they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. What we read here is the result of rejecting God's word. Because Saul has constantly rejected the word of God, he's left to himself. And himself thinks now it's wise to visit a medium for comfort. And he has his men seek out a medium and they quickly find one. And that's interesting that they found one so quickly. And when they find her, she's very suspect of this visit. But we need to stop just for a moment. I mean, seriously, what kind of medium is this? She she supposedly can see the future, but she doesn't know who this person is? Now Saul has to hide himself, right? He doesn't want anyone else knowing that he's on an evil mission. I mean, he was the one who banished the mediums. She thinks something is up and calls him out. But he deflects and he he does so in the name of the Lord. And she agrees and asks whom should she call upon. And he wants Samuel. And what an interesting choice that is for Saul. I guess he doesn't know anyone else to call. Samuel has been his guide in life. And so this is what happens. Verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. Duh. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. First time that's happened, by the way, in the book. Verse 15, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and he answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Now the the medium calls out Samuel and her first reaction is fear. Why? This is the first time it's ever happened for She's a liar. I think it's almost humorous. It's, it's, she's shocked. Someone came. His works. You know, usually I just blow a little smoke and play Enya in the background and this Ouija board here and move it around and something I make up in my mind. But someone's there and it shocks her. First time she ever got a response. It scares her. She's, she's used to feeding the lie. It happens. It's like Oda May in that movie Ghost, right? When she screams the first time it happens. Shocked. Now, did the woman have the power to bring Samuel back from the dead? The text doesn't say. It simply says that Samuel appeared. It seems far more likely that God sent Samuel to Saul that evening. And if your response is God doesn't do that, then you need to read your Bible more. In Matthew 17, verse 3, God sends both Moses and Elijah to speak to Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. The powers of this woman were irrelevant. They're unimportant. She doesn't have any power. And it wasn't Satan that did this either, as we'll see in our next point. It's Samuel now, by, by God, I believe, coming to Saul. And Saul wants to know who she sees, asks questions of that at. Samuel is there, she says, an old man. Samuel, he's not very happy. Not very happy to see Saul. In verse 15, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Simply, Saul wants some guidance. He wants to know, wants to know what to do in his troubles. And God permitted this one occasion, the soul of a departed prophet, to come as a witness from heaven to confirm what has already spoken to Saul on earth. This is not common practice for God. But for this time and in this way, he makes it happen. And if you've been reading along in 1 Samuel and you've come to chapter 28, you might have thought that I would preach about the evils of witches. Although their practice is evil, the one that is evil in this text this morning isn't the woman, it's Saul. The woman actually comes out pretty good in this chapter. The evil, wicked person is Saul. He has rejected God. He CONTINUED TO SAY NO, 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 NO TO GOD HIS ENTIRE LIFE AND HOW HE'S REAPING WHAT has SOWN. AND THERE'S a, THE CONFLICT HERE IN THIS TEXT. IT ISN'T THE WOMAN AND SAUL. IT'S A CONFLICT BETWEEN THE SEED OF THE WOMAN AND THE SERPENT. THE CONFLICT IS BETWEEN THE KINGDOM OF DARKNESS AND THE KINGDOM OF GOD. AND HERE, SAUL IS RIGHT DIRECTLY IN THE MIDDLE OF THE KINGDOM OF DARKNESS putting on the facade of religion, banishing mediums and necromancers, but then putting on a disguise to go and consult those same people that he banished. Saul, living an outward false faith to satisfy people, all the while rejecting God and rejecting his word. Saul is captivated with the kingdom of darkness. He wants more of it. And this is as old as time since the Garden of Eden this conflict that will continue through the Old Testament into the New Testament, and Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this whole thing with Saul in this book is Satan's attempt to overthrow God. It's not just a story. It's not just a man. This is Satan trying to disturb the plan of God, and he can't do it. And Saul goes to, to witchcraft to get answers. He thinks he will go to a medium to get counsel from God and he will get counsel all right. He will get a word from God, but it's not a word that he wants because we see the end here. His last response is the end. Saul hears the word from the Lord in verse 16 and Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Not only did Samuel remind Saul of all that he spoke already to him when he was on earth, that God had forsaken him in silence and removing him and replacing him on the throne, that there was a second element, he says. God would be bringing judgment to Saul. He would be joining Samuel in death along with his sons. And this is the final end of divine abandonment. When man abandons God, he wants God to leave him alone and leave him with himself and his own ways, but when God abandons man, he brings him to the judgment of death. And the only way for God to keep his justice, to keep his honor and sovereignty is to bring judgment to those that have rejected him. And friends, the offer is made to all to come and receive what Christ has done for you on the cross. But friends, the offer won't always be there. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he was near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon Saul continually rejected the offer from God, showing his rejection of God. And friend, perhaps you are here today like many other Sundays. Maybe you even have grown up in the church, attended Sunday school and services and gotten involved serving in some way here. But ultimately in your life, you have rejected God. You have rejected his word. And you want God to leave you alone and you still want to keep up the front for everyone else. You still want to show your religion to others while inside you waste away. Friend, your time is running out. The patience of God has a purpose. It's to lead you to repentance. Repent today. Repent from your sinful rejection of God And accept his good offer of salvation. Turn from your selfish life and turn to Christ. And if you've been here for years and you've never repented, friend, listen no one will judge you here. We'll rejoice with you, we'll praise God for saving you. Don't wait. Don't let the sun go down in this day until you've turned. You've turned from your wicked life and you've turned to God. It was too late for Saul. Perhaps it's not too late for you. For Saul, he rejected God. He rejected his word and all that was left for Saul was Satan. Saul wanted so desperately to hear from God. He was so fooled into thinking that God was still going to play along in his game. But what he heard wasn't good news. It was the final end of Saul, that tomorrow he and his sons would die. The end would come. How does he react? Look at verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand. I've listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant." Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the women urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she quickly killed it and took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And they arose and went away that night. God does speak in the midst of darkness. It's really a strange moment here. Saul has been fasting. We don't know why. It doesn't make much sense. He's supposed to be preparing for battle, and he's been fasting, and he hears the news of his impending death, and he faints. I guess if you had been told from a person who's dead that you're going to die tomorrow, you might have fainted too. It's a weird moment, and so Saul now fully realizes that the end is coming. Tomorrow. Friends, in, in this story, you see Saul crying out to God, but friends, he isn't crying out to God for God. He's crying out to God for him to get him out of trouble. He's coming to God in his own terms and on his own way. He's trying to use God for his own selfish gain. And when you're in a crisis and you're desperate and gullible, you'll, you'll grab a hold of anything that you think will keep you afloat. And you listen to all sorts of people that you would never listen to normally. And you would do things that you would not normally do. You're not trusting God. You're overcome by the crisis. And you're unwilling to surrender to God and his plan. And friends, listen. God cannot give you lasting peace and happiness apart from himself. Because there is no such thing. It only comes through God. There have been many who think that they have found God in the midst of a crisis, but probably not. The proof? As soon as they're out of crisis, they go back to the way that they were living before. Now, hear me, I'm not saying that you shouldn't seek God in a crisis. I just think you need to ask why you're seeking Him in that crisis. Are you really seeking Him? Or just trying to get out of trouble? Are you realizing that he is the only one you should submit your life to and the only one that you should trust? There are a lot of people who go through deathbed conversions because they're scared of hell. I realize that hell and judgment are compelling reasons to seek God, but you can't use God to get out of hell. A lot of people who go through deathbed conversions, if they ever get off their deathbed, will most likely go back to the way they lived before because it wasn't real repentance. Conversion, biblical conversion, is not just fleeing from hell. It's running to God. There's a difference, friends. A repentance that will not change you in life isn't one that will save you in death. I've heard from you, friends, who are worried for your wayward friends and your wayward kids, and you're holding tight to that child profession of faith when they were seven, but the last 30 years have been nothing but defiance of God. Friend, a repentance that will not change your life isn't one that will save you in death. Saul never truly repents. He's always running from one crisis to another, never submitting his life to God. Do you remember back in 1 Samuel 15 when Samuel was bringing God's judgment to Saul? He says, for rebellion is as as the sin of divination. And that rebellion that Saul had not obeyed God was like, to God, it was like witchcraft. Huh. Friends, these... Rebellions in your life, even the small ones, are like that to God. Like witchcraft, like visiting a medium. Those areas of compromise in your life are like idolatry. But we have trouble seeing those little areas in our life. We don't, we don't think that they're as bad as Saul here, like him visiting a medium. And you are be thinking, God, it's just a small area of disobedience. And so what if we've slept together? We're not hurting anyone, we love each other. Or why would anyone care if I don't give to the church or tithe? It's not like I'm stealing from the church. See, it's the same for Saul, just a small compromise that have now grown into much larger dependence on the demonic. And this always happens, friends. You never think that you would pray to Satan or visit a witch, but then little stuff happens. Little stuff each day where you place your trust in something else. And they begin to slowly and secretly replace God in your life. And here's how it works. Small rebellions, small disobediences, separate you from the security of knowing that you are in God's will. It's like a chain link. If you're having your car towed by a chain, how many chain links need to be broken before all things are going to go wrong? Just One. Saul breaks fellowship with God through what we might call a small sin. But the assurance that he is God's choice, that he's doing what God would have him to do, is now gone. And so he turns to something else for assurance. He turns to something else for joy for his life. And this happens to all of us. And you may say, I'm not very religious. I, I was just invited this morning by a friend, Well, maybe not, but something in your life will always be an ultimate. There's always something that you turn to for your source of security, something that you depend on, something that you lean on, and whatever it is, that's your ultimate. It may not be religion, but it may be your job, your spouse, or your looks, or your cash. Whatever you worship is your ultimate in life. And what you worship is what you find fulfillment in, your security and your joy in. And if that is anything besides God, it's idolatry. Even a form of following Satan. And many of you would never consider going to a witch or doing a seance, but you treat your money like a God. You treat your position at work like a God. You treat your stuff like a God. You serve it. You worry about it. You, you won't be generous with it. Some of you treat romance like a God. You'll do anything to get it and to have it forever. Many of you treat your family like a God. You won't entertain any plan of God that would separate you from your family. Family is your God, not the God of the universe. Friends, either God is your God with no conditions, no qualifications, or you are not you are an idolater in the path of Satan. And this may seem harsh, but there's no middle ground. Saul's life as a king was a tragedy. And his problem was not the Philistines. His problem wasn't Goliath. His problem wasn't David. David. Saul's biggest problem was Saul. See, God would conquer all the enemies of Saul, no matter what would happen in the situation if he would trust him, but he didn't trust him. He only trusted himself. Saul wouldn't delight in God. He only delighted in himself. And friend, your biggest problem this morning isn't isn't the things outside of you. Your biggest problem is you. So we can't continue to blame everyone else or our circumstances. We need to see ourselves as God sees us and turn to him. Who are you delighting in this morning? Who are you trusting in? You've seen two men when confronted with trouble and both are a witness for us and what not to do. David has his own issues, maybe even rightly so, for his suffering at the hands of Saul. But King Saul, he's been charging ahead in his rejection ever since chapter 15. Who are you trusting in today, friend? I pray that you will find your refuge and trust in trusting God and God alone. And may these chapters be a warning to you and encouragement to your walk with God this week. May we be seen as God's children who take refuge in him when trouble comes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the difficult text that you gave us this morning. Convicting text, God. Reminders again in your word that we need to trust you and we need to love you and delight in you. We need to be aware of those small steps away from you, small rebellions, small disobediences. And God, be, we need to be quick to confess those as sin and turn back to you. I pray for your people here this morning that you would make them aware of ways that they have left you. And that they would be soft in their hearts to confess that and to seek forgiveness from you. God. I pray for those that are seated here this morning that they have rejected your word. They have rejected you ultimately. And I pray that you would save them. That you would soften their hearts. That you would give them faith to believe that you would convert them for your honor and for your glory. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever, amen.